Thank you for joining our podcast, where I, Keely Severson, Eric Johnson, and Alicia Swamy are exposing mold. Today we are here with Dr. Andrew Whitehead and two PhD students that are researching in his lab. We have Nicole McNabb, who is a PhD student of pharmacology and toxicology, and we have Tony Gill, who is a PhD student in genetics. This podcast is brought to you by Michael Rubino, the mold medic, and All-American Restoration, the first and only mold remediation company in the country specializing in remediating mold for people with underlying health conditions or mold sensitivities. They've quickly become the most recommended remediation company from doctors and mold inspectors nationwide. Check out our show notes to pick up your copy of Michael Rubino's book, The Mold Medic, an expert guide on mold remediation, or visit allamericanrestoration.com to get your home assessed and get your health back on track today. This podcast is brought to you by My Micro Lab. Are you sick and tired of being sick and tired? Have you gone from doctor to doctor, had lots of tests, tried many supplements, medications, vitamins, and still feel awful? You and many others like you could be suffering from exposure to molds and mycotoxins where you live or where you work. My MycoLab is the only blood test available that tests immune system reactivity to mycotoxins. Visit MyMycoLab.com to order your test today. Welcome, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having us. Alicia tells me that the topic that you all specialize in is evolutionary genomics. Who wants to tell us what that means? I can take a stab at it. So we're interested in how species, mostly wildlife species, respond to changes in their environment, uh, stressful changes in their environment, with a special focus on human-caused changes to the environment, like pollution and climate change. And species can respond physiologically uh, over short time scales, or they can also change over very long time scales across many generations. And so we use genomics to understand mechanisms through which species could respond immediately, you know, physiologically. So we uh, try to understand the molecular responses, and that's where so the genomics techniques and tools come in. Species can also respond over many generations through evolutionary change. And evolutionary change is associated with changes in the sequence of DNA. And that's where other genomic technologies come in, is looking at how DNA changes over time in response to changes in the environment, for example, through, through evolutionary adaptation. So we use genomics to understand physiological responses, mechanisms, and also genetic responses across longer periods of time. So what, what things are you looking into right now in your research? Well, I can talk a little bit about some of the, the killifish work that we're doing. And then Nicole and Tony perhaps can talk a bit about what they're doing in their research. So one long-term research theme in our lab is trying to understand how uh, species respond to pollution and uh, in what circumstances species could evolve their way out of uh, a scenario where they encounter pollution. And so we've been studying a really extraordinary example of that where Atlantic killifish, they're a little fish about the size of your thumb, have very rapidly evolved pretty extraordinary resistance to really extreme levels of pollution. 
that you find in some urban estuaries along the East Coast. And so these fish are normally very sensitive to pollutants, but populations that you find in urban estuaries have very rapidly evolved the ability to survive up to 8,000 times the normally lethal levels of chemicals, which is not subtle, and it's a massive evolutionary leap, and it's very unusual. Most species cannot or have not been able to evolve resistance to the pollution that we throw at them. So by studying killifish, these populations, we're trying to understand why adaptation, evolutionary adaptation, is so hard. By studying sort of the exception to the rule, we're gaining insight into why uh, evolution is unlikely to be a solution and hasn't been a solution to pollution for most species. So uh, Nicole is studying uh, also killifish and um, their responses to pollution, a class of pollutants that's the public is only now is really starting to gain awareness of. And she's studying this really interesting time period of susceptibility. Nicole, do you want to tell them about your project a bit? Sure, I can do that. So what Andrew was already talking about is thinking about it on um, a time scale of many generations, an evolutionary time scale. Traditionally, toxicology included looking at acute effects like at an individual physiological level so like within one individual's lifetime but what my work involves is looking at um, multiple generations so not not quite on the other end of the time scale of many generations of evolution but multiple generations so like parent to children to grandchildren and so i'm looking at exposures um, to flame retardants which are ubiquitous. You can find levels of these flame retardants in humans and wildlife. And I'm looking at exposures um, in, in one generation of Atlantic killifish, um, and then looking at effects on their children and their grandchildren. Um, so specifically, I'm, I'm looking at fish behavior. And that's partly because with these chemicals, there's evidence um, of neurological consequences and, and effects on behavior. Um, and I'm also looking at other factors like reproduction and fertility and survival, of course, and then combining that with omics tools. So sequencing RNA and looking at what, you know, what genes are turned off and on and comparing that between generations and comparing the unexposed to the exposed or the exposed lineages. So like their grandparents were exposed to these flame retardants. And the benefit of, of using these omics technologies is that I can cast a broad net to look at some effects that we might not be measuring because I'm not sure. Like the thing with, with uh, these transgenerational effects is that we're not always sure what the effects will look like when they're passed along to, to future generations. So, you know, we can make a prediction, like I think maybe it will affect behavior, but not always sure what we might see. Um, so that's the benefit of, of using these omics technologies. Wow. Thank you so much. And in, in terms of your transgenerational overview, what are you guys finding? Are you at that stage where you're kind of finding some information and starting to put the, the pieces of the puzzle together? 
Not quite, almost. So just finished spawning the fish this summer to to get the grandchildren. So this has been a study, you know, now it's been over two years in the making since I first exposed the original generation of fish. So I'm not quite sure yet. So unfortunately, I don't have answers yet. But we did see some interesting effects in the behavior of the children. So the, the parents of the fish that I just spawned, but I'm not sure whether they're they're still persistent to the grandchildren. This really reminds me of Dr. Shauna Swan's work with the PFAs in humans and how that's affecting our, our reproduction. And she's basically making the prediction that every generation we're losing years and years of sperm count and quality and all of that. So it's really interesting to see these environmental factors affecting nature and also thinking about, and as I was discussing earlier, we always think of evolution as something that happens slowly. But when you guys are doing this kind of research, and especially in the killifish, you're understanding that actually different factors can make a species evolve quite rapidly to their environment. Yeah, I mean, that's been the prevailing attitude for a couple hundred years, right? That evolution and adaptation uh, unfold slowly. I mean, certainly things like speciation unfolds slowly over long periods of time. So certain evolutionary processes are, are certainly slow, although there are some weird exceptions to that rule. But also that thinking has extended to adaptation. You know, even Darwin, when he sort of presented his cogent theory of natural selection, still sort of considered adaptation as something that would unfold over very long periods of time. And that's true in many scenarios. But if you think of like your, <laughs> the, the most obvious examples of natural selection and adaptation, we think of pests evolving resistance to pesticides. We think of viruses evolving uh, resistance to the chemicals that we throw at them. We think about tuberculosis evolving resistance to the drugs that we throw at them. So evolution can unfold very quickly, especially under sort of extreme environmental change. I think what a lot of people, uh, there's this weird irony that I like to point out though, and that's the species that we want to kill tend to evolve resistance. So the insects and weeds that we want to wipe out from agricultural fields tend to evolve resistance to the chemicals that we throw at them. Diseases that plague us as people uh, tend to evolve resistance to the chemicals that we throw at them. Yet the chemicals that we pollute the environment with, creatures that we care about preserving, fish, mammals, you know, birds, don't evolve resistance. They tend to get wiped out. And so I, I think of that as a, a bit of an, an irony. And there are reasons for that. It tends to be a lot of the, the species that we want to kill uh, are things that have features that enable them to evolve very, very, very quickly, uh, like massive population sizes, very short generation times. So viruses, bacterial pathogens, <laughs> insects, weeds. These are among the species that have massive reservoirs of genetic diversity, which is like the raw material for evolution. So they've got a lot of raw materials to evolve quickly, and they've got very short generation times, which means that they can pack in a lot of generations within even just within a year, and they've got the capacity to make a ton of babies. So they have high uh, reproductive potential. And those are all features of species that can enable them to evolve quickly. It turns out that the, 
the species for better or worse that we as humans tend to care about preserving like frogs and birds and mammals and fish are species compared to everything else that have pretty long generation times have not that many babies relative to other species and have relatively small genetic gas tanks. So have lower ability to evolve very quickly. So in the Anthropocene, you know, in these, this current era of human impacts on the environment, we're seeing most species that we care about declining. You know, we've all heard about the biodiversity crisis. Uh, and so the species that we care about are declining and those that we have problems with are more likely to persist. Thank you for that explanation. That was really, really great. And, you know, as I was looking at your website online, I was really interested by the term ecotoxicology. Could you maybe discuss this a little bit more and what that means? I could take a stab at that. So I guess ecotoxicology, to kind of put it in perspective, is a kind of subfield of larger of toxicology. Toxicology is basically fundamentally is a study of, um, well, study of poisons, right? And that's traditionally been done in um, looking at the effects of toxins and poisons in humans. You can't obviously ethically poison humans to study what the effects are, but um, you can use animal models. So we've used animal models throughout history to study the effects of toxins, like such as um, mouse models or fish models. Ecotoxicology, in contrast to that, is on the study of toxins in organisms in general, particularly in wild populations, right? So in wild populations, as opposed to contrast that with model organisms, you get kind of an um, the full range of variation in response to a contaminant in the environment. Whereas with inbred model organisms like mice, which are essentially, by inbred, they are essentially clones of one another. They have very little to zero genetic diversity. So by design, the full range of variation in response to uh, a contaminant is restricted because you're basically we're basically working with clones. So focusing on wild populations and things that aren't model organisms and things that aren't just humans, expanding the range of uh, toxicology to other organisms as well, it's more realistic in terms of understanding toxins in the environment, their role that they play in the environment. However, this kind of embrace of variation, which I think is a good thing, does come with challenges, such as being able to determine the cause and effect, right? So let's say, for instance, when a population collapses in the wild, and it happens to coincide with a chemical spill in that same habitat. Was it the spill that caused the collapse or decline in the population? Uh, was it some combination of the spill and other unknown factors? And in, in a controlled environment, a controlled laboratory environment, when you conduct chemical exposure studies, you control the environment completely, right? So you have a better grasp of cause and effect. You add a chemical and you see an effect in the organism, right? And so it's a challenge in ecotoxicology, but also I think it's a benefit is a kind of more realistic idea of what's going on. But like I said, there's establishing cause and effect can be a little more challenging. And that's kind of where, I don't know if you want to talk about ecotoxicology too, establishing cause and effect and how we can kind of overcome that challenge and just some of the tools that we use in our lab to, to deal with that. Right. I can, I can jump in and add to it. So another, you know, big part of ecotoxicology is that we're either trying to hindcast or forecast. And I'll explain more what I mean by that. So with hindcasting, this is where something happened, there's a pollution event, say, um, an oil spill, or we see significant negative effects in a wildlife population. Um, so say there's a, a species of fish and we see populations declining, and we're trying to determine cause and effect of was that 
caused by exposure to pollution. And that can be really challenging and you need strong evidence too, because say you're going up against a big oil company, if you're trying to say, well, your oil spill caused these fish to die, you know, you need strong evidence to back that up. And so one form to get that evidence would be to measure levels of the chemical um, in, in the animal. But that can be challenging because maybe it's a chemical that doesn't stick around in the body very long. Um, so there are chemicals that are metabolized, broken down quickly and offloaded. Uh, so maybe we won't actually be able to measure that. But this is again where omics and molecular tools can come in handy because we can actually look for known genetic signatures of exposure to that contaminant and then combine that with as as tony said when we do experiments in the lab we can we can control all of the variation and all the factors and so if we combine field studies so say we're we're going out and collecting organisms and you know sequencing their dna to look for that molecular signature combine that with an experiment in the lab where we expose the fish to the oil um, and see whether there are negative health effects. So that's how we would build that strong evidence that the oil spill led to this negative effect of the fish population declining. So then on the other side with forecasting, this is where we're trying to predict possible um, health effects of chemicals. So there are thousands of chemicals, new chemicals coming onto the market every year. And a lot of times when they come onto the market, you know, we don't know a lot about the potential health effects. So we, we might know that it's not toxic to the point of being lethal, but we don't know about potentially sublethal effects. So where it won't kill the animal, but could cause detrimental health effects such as reproduction. So with forecasting, a lot of times we're not really sure. We can predict what the effects might be, maybe based on the structure of the chemical, if it's similar to a structure of a, another chemical that's been well studied. So we can have predictions, but, but we, we're not really sure. And so again, that's where molecular tools help us cast a broad net um, for potential effects and, and actually generate hypotheses that we could further test with, with exposure experiments. I remember about 20 years ago when the uh, Delta smelt, the Sacramento Delta smelt started to crash a sentinel species that was once the most numerous fish in the uh, Sacramento Delta region. And the population just started to decline massively. And the uh, working hypothesis was malnutrition, loss of habitat, warming water, just basically less places for the Delta smelt to you know, do their thing, and a little bit of reading, and it turns out that they were suffering from severely deformed sex organs. They were, um, I mean, structural uh, defects. So I uh, contacted the California Department of Fish and Game and suggested that this was more consistent with endocrine receptor disruptors than with their working model, and they actually agreed and so that UC Davis was starting to work on that, look, look at the decline of the Delta smelt from that perspective. And yet in all the years since, they keep talking about loss of habitat and the other factors and not the, the concept that this is some kind of ecological poisoning, nor the fact that this is actually in the drinking water for the Bay Area, which might possibly have effects on humans as well. Are you contacting people about possible effects in animal species, in fish, that could be extrapolated to the human population? 
So scientists have been studying the Delta smelt decline for decades now. There's been a lot of resources spent on testing lots of different hypotheses. And it turns out that there are many causes. There isn't a single cause to Delta smelt decline. And people have been studying this for, for quite a while. As I mentioned, there's a, a very nice series of recent reports that I can send you, Eric, if you'd like to follow up. The answer is it's complicated because the changes that we have exerted on their native habitat are complicated. There are chemicals in the environment. There are radical changes to their habitat. There's changes to the flow. There's increasing temperatures. There's changes to predator-prey relationships. There's changes to introduce species that uh, feed on them and that they feed on. There is no simple answer to why Delta smelts are declining. The simple answer is human alterations to the environment are, are what are declining. What are those human changes to the environment? Well, that's where establishing the chain of causality, establishing that chain of cause and effect uh, that, that Nicole and Tony were talking about comes into play. And so we can pose hypotheses, endocrine disruptors, habitat loss, you know, exporting of water, changes of salinity. But then we have to do the experiments uh, and collect the data to fill in the gap between a hypothesis and an observation of population decline. And decades of research have shown that many of these factors uh, interact. And uh, some of those factors include chemical contaminants, uh, like you, 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 uh, you, you raise, Eric. But that's not the only reason. Should we be concerned about chemicals in the environment? Yes. <laughs> Should humans be concerned about chemicals in the environment? Do non-human species, are they sentinels for us? Yes. It's a lot, like Tony said at the beginning, we can't do experiments in people. We can collect epidemiological data to sort of make correlations between health effects in humans, you know, so dropping sperm counts in, in men, and lots of things correlate with that. But the causative factors are really hard to pull apart. But endocrine disruptors is probably a pretty good hypothesis, and we know that we are exposed to lots and lots and lots of, of chemicals. So like Nicole said, she works on flame retardants. Everyone on this phone call and everyone you know has detectable levels of flame retardants in their body. We have all been exposed and we have all accumulated these chemicals and they're very persistent in the environment. Uh, they cause neurotoxicity and they cause effects that will affect your children, uh, even if your children weren't exposed. So should we be concerned about this? Yes. Is it hard to establish the chain of causality? Yes. <laughs> But this is the role of, of science. And, and honestly, that's really the, the main challenge of ecotoxicology, like all science, is establishing this chain of causality. Anyone can propose a hypothesis, which imagines how you know, one thing could cause another, but then the science has to be done to, to confirm that. And that's, I think, where a lot of people misunderstand, and some people even misrepresent science, right? Until causal relationships are established, Hypothesis remains just a hypothesis. And when one keeps pushing that hypothesis as if causality has been determined when it hasn't is, is when, you know, that someone has hung up their lab coat if they ever wore one and becomes a, a person pushing an agenda. And so, so that's the real challenge here is establishing this chain of causality. And, and I've gone off on a bit of a tangent, but to bring it back to Delta smelt and a lot of the species that we, that we study, um, it's complicated because we've wrought a lot of changes on the environment. And some of those changes 
Maybe there's one cause that really stands out. But a lot of these changes interact with each other in complex ways that takes a, a lot of hard science to figure out. Yeah, one thing that I was curious about is whether or not the flame retardants might actually be processed by microbes into more pathogenic forms, that perhaps the flame retardants are not bioavailable and particularly harmful to humans in their purest form, but as they get into the environment, they can actually exacerbate microbial colonies and be processed into supertoxins. For many chemicals, uh, metabolic alterations tend to detoxify. There are examples where metabolic alterations will activate chemicals. That's what makes some pesticides toxic to insects and not humans, or at least reduce toxicity to humans, is because insects have the metabolic machinery to activate the parent compound into something that's toxic, whereas mammals don't. So a lot of designed poisons are designed in a way to, to not hit, hurt people, but to, to hurt the target species. That doesn't, uh, that doesn't always work perfectly, but that's the, the intent. And a lot of the uh, chemicals that we're talking about here, like flame retardants, the reason flame retardants are a problem is because they're very tough they don't get broken down in the environment. And that's why they're a problem. That's why chemicals that were banned you know, 10, 20, 30 years ago are still out there in their parent form. And their parent form tends to be the most toxic form. And that's why, that's why they're a problem. If microbes could chew these up, we wouldn't be in the position we are. Chemicals like, uh, like oil. So oil spills are clearly a big <laughs> ecological problem. Some of the toxic opponents in oil we know are really toxic to humans and they're, you know, they're in exhaust from cars and a lot of the things that we breathe in. We're, we're also experiencing essentially oil spills when we're, when we're breathing in exhaust from traffic. And these things can cause health impacts. But a lot of these chemicals get broken down very quickly uh, by our bodies and by microbes. Does that mean they're not a problem? No, because we're persistently exposed to them, right? Uh, they, we keep getting hit with them. We keep metabolizing them, but not uh, without damage happening in the meantime. Now, things like oil is a mixture of like 10,000 chemicals. So most of those chemicals, when they're attacked by microbes or by our own metabolic machinery, get broken down to less toxic forms. But some of them, get metabolically activated to more toxic forms. That's the vast minority, but there are some hydrocarbons that become more cancer-causing with metabolic transformations. So yeah, that does happen sometimes. Could there be a moment in time when the parent compound is being broken down by microbes and these um, materials are volatilized and become a toxic plume, airborne and more bioavailable and yes, eventually they might be broken down into more harmless forms, but for that time when the microbes first start to decompose them, there could be a window of vulnerability when exposure to these microbial colonies could be more pathogenic. I haven't seen evidence for that. Um, there is a, a phenomenon called a global distillation where chemicals that are uh, of a certain structure that don't get broken down by microbes uh, start to become uh, a bigger, bigger problem. So chemicals that, there are lots of chemicals like PCBs that we've heard about, dioxins, and probably flame retardants, but I'm not sure, that in their parent form get volatilized. 
Uh, and they and as they uh, get volatilized, they get moved by air currents away from where they were released into the environment. And especially in the summer, they volatilize as things warm up. They get up into the atmosphere, and they move poleward because that's how our uh, air currents flow. They flow toward the poles, at least at higher elevations. And then later in the season, as it get, gets cold, that chemical can fall out and get back down to the earth. And the next summer, it volatilizes again and leapfrogs a little bit further poleward each year, further and further poleward. That's why people in northern climates, uh, Inuit, polar bears, beluga whales, creatures that are farthest away from where pollutants are released in the environment, are among, carry among the highest body burdens of these chemicals. So volatilization is a problem, and especially for chemicals that don't get easily broken down, and they can persist long enough to make it to an Arctic region and get concentrated in, in top predators. Years ago, I had an experience where I was in an area that had been heavily firebombed or treated with borate from aerial drops of flame retardant to put out a forest fire. And I felt like I was having a strong reaction to this area. And I thought, is there any way without a laboratory if I could find out if I'm reactive to this flame retardant? So I went to the loading platform at the airport and found that I had no problem with it. It didn't have any effect on me at all. But I went down to a, a culvert, a drainage ditch below the load, loading platform and found that I was having a strong reaction down there. And that's what led me to the hypothesis that perhaps the microbes were breaking them down and releasing these substances. And that's what I was reacting to. And as it turns out, this area where this culvert was blowing, where the, the wind was directing this material downwind, everybody for about a mile was sick and complaining of headaches and fatigue and rashes and strange illnesses that no doctors could figure out. So that's why I was uh, curious as to whether there could be a moment in time when the decomposition by microbes of flame retardants could release them and make them more bioavailable. So the kinds of observations that you, you mentioned there are, are important, right? This is, this is where science starts. It starts with an observation. This is unusual. This isn't the way that it used to be. This is, and you might notice an association. And that's the beginning of science, the formation of a hypothesis to seek mechanistic linkages between some event and some outcome, right? And so you've just now articulated some really good hypotheses and you've made some associations. The science to follow up on that is the hard part. I think we can come up with lots of hypotheses and where scientists go is they, they sort of pick the hypotheses that seem most plausible first, because we can have like lots of hypotheses, right? And start to chase those down and, and do experiments. You know, and certainly microbes metabolize things and metabolism can make things more or less bioavailable. And so there's, there's certainly a, a hypothesis there. I haven't seen any evidence that starts to fill in that chain of causality, but the observation is a good place to start. Yeah, the best I could do under the circumstance is lead other people who are chemically, chemically sensitive to these locations and ask them if they could feel anything. And it turns out they could. But of course, with no scientific abstracts backing up or supporting my claims, 
I can't get any researchers to um, come take a look at these places. Sure. So we know that a lot of diseases are increasing in frequency, right? And have been for decades. Multiple cancers are increasing in frequency. Multiple neurological diseases have been increasing in frequency. And so why? That's the question. What are the causes of these things? And we know that there are different hotspots on the planet for a lot of disease. Uh, certain autoimmune diseases you don't find in developing countries. You only find those in developed countries. And uh, certain cancers, there are hotspots globally. And so what all this tells us is where there are hotspots and when there are things changing over time, that those are diseases that have environmental causes. So it's some change in the environment that is causing disease. So we think of you know, an individual's susceptibility to disease is a function of their genetics. You have uh, mutations that might make you more susceptible to diabetes, for example. And those exist, but those don't explain the change in disease over time. Because as a species, our genetics isn't changing over the time period where we've seen disease incidence increasing. So we know that susceptibility to disease is an interaction between our genetics and the environment. And uh, environmental causes of disease and, and genetic causes of disease are, are both active areas of research. But for diseases that have been increasing in frequency recently, that's not genetics. That's uh, something about the environment. So we can think of lots of reasons why the environment, uh, lots of environmental changes and chemicals is one of those things. We have been putting a lot more chemicals in the environment over the last century. And chemicals certainly contribute to human disease, and sometimes in very subtle ways, and sometimes in really obvious ways. And often that subtlety comes with low doses of exposures that don't cause an overt immediate effect, and mixtures of chemicals that might interact in very complex and in many ways, unpredictable ways until you get that mixture through synergistic effects. And that makes them very hard to study. Well, from an anecdotal, empirical, observational standpoint, at the same time the Delta smelt and various other uh, insect populations were crashing, the frog simply disappeared. And the chytridiomycosis has been a terrible problem with some frog species going extinct. And I read about an amazing experiment the um, yellow leg frog up at uh, Lake Tahoe, the populations crashed, and some researchers did a, uh, a study where they took sick frogs with the chytrid disease up north, uh, up beyond Mount Lassen, where the air is presumably cleaner because it's not downwind of the uh, major metropolitan areas or the San Joaquin agricultural region. And some of the frogs that were clearly stressed and suffering with this fungal chytrid disease recovered. And they took healthy frogs from the Lassen area down to Lake Tahoe and introduced them into the same conditions, and they fell apart with this fungal problem. So there's an environmental correlation that was made here, very scary. Obviously, the Lake Tahoe uh, Chamber of Commerce is not particularly interested in pursuing this. But here we have um, a study which shows that a low level of something, something in the environment 
even at high elevations is affecting the frogs. And to my knowledge, this has not been followed up on. Yeah, there's lots of mysteries out there, which means that us in science, as scientists aren't going to be uh, without hypotheses to test. So that's some uh, job security for us. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, disease is very, very interesting. So, you know, this, and this brings us to actually uh, part of Tony's thesis research. In 1989, uh, Exxon Val, you know, drunk captain runs an oil tanker aground in Prince William Sound in Alaska. And uh, one of the most uh, well-studied oil spills in history uh, unfolds, uh, uh, you know, a coating thousands of kilometers of pristine coastline in Alaska with, with oil. Three years later, Prince William Sound herring collapses. Three years later, one of the major proximate causes was because a viral epidemic ripped through the population. So this has been a bit of a, a mystery. Not was there disease. Yes, there was disease. And yes, it was a problem for this population. But why then? This disease is present in other Alaskan populations and has never led to a full-on collapse. Was there a role for the oil spill uh, three years before? And that's where uh, Tony's research has taken off because, you know, here diseases are also creatures that are behaving in an environment and there can be changes to the environment that favor or disfavor them. So when we're thinking about climate change, epidemiologists are very worried about disease being a relatively underappreciated threat to wildlife and humans. Because as the temperature changes and as moisture patterns change, favorability and disfavorability of environments for disease changes. And so we're gonna start seeing diseases in places that we didn't see them before. And we're gonna start seeing diseases pop up in environments that were previously not favorable to them. Uh, and so diseases interact with the environment sometimes in, in complex ways. So yeah, this is something that we have some knowledge about, but we're gonna, we're gonna see some big surprises in the next uh, few decades with uh, disease outbreaks in wildlife and in humans. Yeah, following up with what Andrew said and kind of returning to our theme of establishing cause and effect, a little bit more about the Exxon Valdez oil spill. You know, the oil spill happened to coincide. It occurred in the spring, which is when herring are spawning. So get this oil spill happens during a spawn. So eggs, embryos, larvae are hatching, are growing up in early development, coated by oil, right? The fish left that area and swam out into the ocean eventually. The oil also was either cleaned up or sunk to the, to the bottom where the fish were no longer in direct contact with it. And it, after about two years, there was very little detectable oil at the site of the spill. But as, as Andrew said, that the, time, the timing is different. So the collapse took place three to four years after the spill. So by the time the collapse happened, there was no more oil in the sound. So it's very hard to just make a direct connection between oil and collapse. There's something, there's an intermediate between there we have to establish. And that's kind of been, right, my, my, uh, my, my thesis work here is trying to establish that, trying to connect those dots. If there are, you know, dots to connect, you know, if there's a line to be drawn. So yeah, so I'm interested in the effects of fossil fuels and or hydrocarbons on your health. So if you think particularly on uh, the long-term impacts of, or long-term health consequences of, of exposure or coming into contact with hydrocarbons and fossil fuels, 
And um, we talked about this kind of before already, but long-term can kind of be defined in a couple of different ways in our, in our lab group. So for instance, um, if you come into contact with hydrocarbons or fossil fuels in early development, and for a kind of brief window of time early on in your development, early on in life, what are the long-term consequences of that? And then, then, you, then you're kind of like, you know, you're, you're, stopped being, you're done being exposed to that it was just for a brief window. Do you, are there long-term consequences over the span of an organism's life, over a lifespan? Are there long-term consequences of that, ex, of, that, of that exposure, that contaminant? So that's one way to think about long-term. Um, that's more like a developmental um, effect. And another way to think about it is, are there um, co- long-term consequences over the generations, right? So your ancestors, were exposed to a fossil fuel or hydrocarbon expo- had, had hydrocarbon exposure early on in their development. Does that echo through the generations to, and so that's more of an evolutionary, on an evolutionary time scale. And so my work has been kind of looking at both of those in herring, both the developmental effects of brief early on exposure to hydrocarbons and fossil fuels, and then more of an evolutionary approach. Um, looking at the long, you know, m- over multiple generations, are there still is there still evidence? Is there still like a, a, a genomic imprint or genomic evidence or scar of this, of, of, your, of your ancestors being exposed to this? So it's, yeah, it's pretty, I haven't published anything on it yet, but that's, yeah, that's what we're, we're trying to establish. And of course, you must also be looking at intermediaries, the um, disruption in the food chain. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, my, mo- kind of my hypotheses moving forward are um, kind of the disease angle, more the pathogen angle. Does oil have some sort of um, immunotoxic effect on development? Uh, does it affect the immune the function of your immune system? Also, does this particular population who were exposed 30 years ago, are their ancestors, are their offspring many generations later still have an affected immune, immune response to disease pathogens in the environment? But yeah, certainly um, there's a lot of contributing factors to the collapse of that, of that fishery and, and, it's, and it's also, also its lack of recovery too. And so, right, so ecosystem pressures are many and varied. It's, it's hard to tease that out. Yeah, but we're definitely... Yeah, so Eric, and in, that's a really good explanation, Tony. And, and Eric, you, you raise an important point. Um, you know, fortunately, the, the Exxon Valdez spill has been probably the best studied oil spill in history. And uh, what came from that was, you know, a lot of ecotoxicology that really included a lot of ecology. And that's what ecotoxicology has honestly been lacking. Uh, And uh, what was very, there were a lot of head scratchers following the Exxon Valdez oil spill. And one was, why did river otters recover, but sea otters took a lot longer to recover? And that that ended up being a food chain uh, explanation. So it turns out that oil, even after it disappears from the surface, hasn't disappeared from the environment. And it can linger for a very long time in certain parts of the environment if you know where to look. So if you know where to go today, you could go to Alaska and you could dig up Exxon Valdez oil spill and kill a fish with it. So oil can persist for very long periods of time in the environment, especially in the sediments. And it turns out that both river otters and sea otters got whacked by the spill. River otters came back, sea otters didn't. Why? Because sea otters were digging for clams in the sediment. That's what they ate. River otters ate different things that weren't living in the sediment. So sea otters just kept feeding themselves creatures that were just sucking up oil continuously from the sediment. And so sea otters kept feeding themselves oil, essentially, uh, through the food chain. 
And that was part of the explanation for their very, very slow recovery. Ecology matters. Things are interconnected. That's why it's very difficult to predict how species will respond to climate change. A lot of people have approached that by sort of asking which species are more or less resilient to high temperatures. Okay. That's something that we're doing actually in Delta smelt right now. Um, because you might imagine that species that can, uh, that can do just fine when the temperature is a few degrees higher might be one that you predict does well. But what if the species that that species eats don't do well <laughs> with increased temperatures? Even though you physiologically might be fine, if the species that you interact with in the ecosystem are not fine, then perhaps you're not going to be fine, not through direct effects of temperature on you, but through indirect effects through the ecosystem. And those are very hard to predict. So yeah, food chain things are definitely part of ecotoxicology, a big part of uh, climate change biology. And that's where sort of complex systems modeling comes into play. Again, hard science to do, but science that is being done. When I first uh, started worrying about the Delta smelt and these ecological changes that I was seeing, I've read, of course, everything I could find looking for clues as to what was happening. And something that emerged was that boaters down in the uh, Delta were reporting green slime floating in the water that they could not identify. They um, saw this brightly colored green algae and would go to investigate. And sometimes just proximity, just in a boat, getting close to it, they would get headaches and nausea and severe neurological effects and this was something that experienced boaters claimed that they had not seen before so chasing these uh, environmental changes up uh, as far as you can it looks like the uh, occurrence of algal blooms the harmful algal blooms that have uh, become so prominent within the last 25 years i don't know where they're coming from the um, pollution or what exactly creates them or what makes them so toxic. But it seems that this goes along with the uh, ecological changes that are affecting not only fish, but humans. Huge research efforts by multiple, multiple institutes have, are, are investing in trying to understand the causes of harmful algal blooms. Because you're right, they've been increasing in frequency um, they're problematic for uh, wildlife health and for human health because you know, we eat <laughs> wildlife. They produce uh, some harmful algal blooms are harmful because those creatures that make up the algal bloom produce toxic molecules, neurotoxins in many scenarios. And so neurological problems, neurological dysfunction, neurological toxicity is an outcome of exposures to those chemicals. Big problems for uh, marine mammals. But yeah, what are the drivers? What are the environmental drivers? Harmful algal blooms, big area of research. I'm not an expert, so I'm not going to comment on it. But there, is, there are a lot of experts out there, uh, especially there's a big group at the Scripps uh, Institute of Oceanography down in San Diego that have been a um, big group down there that's been studying harmful algal blooms pretty much Every oceanographic institute on the planet has someone there studying harmful algal blooms because it's recognized uh, to be a problem, uh, at least partly driven by, by uh, human-caused climate change. Can you take zebrafish to different regions and observe them? Because they're a, a very sensitive species. 
very good for detection of these uh, harmful pollutants. Are people doing this? Yeah, I mean, people are using biosensors to understand uh, as sentinels for environmental change. There is a program run by NOAA called Muscle Watch that you might have heard of. It's a number of uh, sites along various U.S. coastlines to use mussels, you know, little bivalves as uh, sentinels for environmental health. You could, because mussels, you know, filter a lot of seawater. So if there are uh, chemicals in seawater, then mussels might accumulate them. And so, again, that's getting at the question of bioavailability that you mentioned earlier, Eric. You can have chemicals in the environment, but if they're not being taken up by organisms, then they're going to be less of a problem than if they are taken up by organisms. So it's important to know what's being taken up by organisms. So let's look at the organisms. Uh, So you can either deploy organisms in the environment, for example, in cages, or you can just uh, take advantage of organisms that are already there like mussels, and go and sample them periodically and see if they're changing, if there is an increase or decrease in certain chemicals, if there are increases or decreases or changes in their reproductive physiology, increases or decreases in their survival and their ability to grow. So yes, uh, biological sensors are in the environment, anywhere from people deploying cell systems that are molecular detectors to caging uh, a fish, like a zebrafish or something else. You can't throw a zebrafish in the ocean though, so they'd be a freshwater sensor uh, kind of species, to periodically sampling wild species. So this is actually something I did way back in my PhD research, is I was interested in how runoff from agricultural fields after spraying orchards was affecting Uh, creatures in the rivers. And this was done in the Sacramento-San Joaquin River system. And so uh, what I did is I I collected a native fish. So this was Sacramento sucker. And I collected them from an area that was clean, upstream of agriculture. And I kept them in a lab for many, many months. And then I basically put them in cages downstream of agricultural areas during rainstorm events and basically sampled them during this uh, rainstorm, this, this pesticide pulse event, and I basically assayed their biology. I used the fish to tell me, are you okay <laughs> in this environment? That was one sort of example of deploying you know, a caged creature and assaying and, and examining its biology in response to an environmental change to establish that chain of causality. In the Deepwater Horizon oil spill, we did something a little bit different. Um, because we, uh, we weren't prepared to deploy cages because we didn't know a spill was going to happen, we basically went out and sampled wild fish from habitats where we saw the oil coming. So you remember that this oil spill was offshore. So we had a few days to collect before event, before pollution data, get a baseline of fish health along this coastline. And then one of those sites that we sampled from eventually got hit by oil we could resample all of those field sites at that point and many times after. And through sort of space and time and the health of the animals, we were able to establish a chain of causality demonstrating the effect of oil, that oil spill on resident species. So that was an example where we did a field study, taking advantage of creatures that were already there to tell us something about the environment, to tell us something about their health and what were the causes. 
And then we've also done studies where we've bring creatures into the lab and do very controlled experiments to ask what we witnessed in the field, what we think is the cause, can we reproduce that in the lab and further build that strength of evidence to say this oil spill is causing developmental failure in this fish. And so lots of ways that you can get at that. So when you guys produce these research articles and you happen to find causality between say an oil spill and what's going on, is this information used to pursue action against the polluting agent? So that way they could at least pay for the ramifications or, or put, in, put money down or something into cleanup efforts or, or anything like that? Yes. <laughs> Our research in particular was used to establish that uh, the oil spill had damaged natural resources in the Gulf of Mexico and was used by expert witnesses to establish that cause and effect relationship and contributed to basically being able to establish that BP and their subsidiaries through this accident and through their negligence had caused damages that they were on the hook for paying for. So yes, a lot of ecotoxicology research is really important for holding responsible parties accountable. So the stakes are high. And so the science has to be done well. And, and again, that chain of causality is really important because BP could say, oh, you detected reproductive failure in your fish. Not my, not my fault. It wasn't the oil. It's something else along that coastline that caused that. How do you know that the reproductive failure in your fish was caused by our oil spill? But our lab studies, our field studies, our molecular tools that show a fingerprint of an oil response and not any other kind of response was crucial for building that pretty tight association, that pretty tight linkage, causal linkage between oil spill, developmental failure that was really important. It's not just us. We were one of many, many research groups that were able to establish chains of causality for lots of different damages to the environment caused by the oil spill. And as a group contributed to a chain of causality that stood up in the court of law and held the responsible party uh, accountable. A lot of the time, we just don't have the resources or the public backing to hold responsible parties accountable for the pollution that they cause and the damages that that cause. The science is out there for many of these kinds of cause and effect relationships. But the political, this is now becomes a political will and a public will to do something about it. Because banning chemicals that are problematic comes with economic costs. And there are powerful interests that are not interested in losing business and having to reinvent how they go about their business. And so big oil has known about climate change has known about the burning of fossil fuels leading to climate change. They've known about this since the 1970s. They've known the cause-effect relationship. Some of the models that industry, oil industry scientists built themselves in the 1980s fairly accurately predicted what's going on right now. And this is well-documented. There are lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of research articles out there establishing this. The documents are available, <laughs> but has that led to us as a people holding these businesses accountable for the environmental damage that they brought about? No.
So it's now a political problem. The science is out there. So it's up to us, individuals, voters, people that care to do something about it. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Dr. Whitehead. And, and thank you all for coming on the show today. Um, Eric Keeley, was, were there any last questions that you had for Dr. Whitehead's team? Well, actually, yeah, I, I do have one final question. There was a tragic occurrence where a family died under mysterious circumstances. Some hikers out where uh, harmful algal blooms were detected. And the cause of um, the mortality of this entire family and their dog was attributed to hyperthermia. I was wondering if it's possible that they got too close to this bloom and inhaled a little bit of anatoxin A, suffered enough neurological effects that this led to them possibly suffering from hyperthermia, whereas otherwise they would have been just fine. Yeah, I know that story. I was aware of that, that happening at the time, and that was a terrible tragedy and, and a mystery for, for months because, and I have good colleagues that study harmful algal blooms and that are work for excellent scientists that work for state agencies that are tracking uh, the incidence of harmful algal blooms and some of the health effects that that might be associated with. So that was a hypothesis early on among many hypotheses of what caused this weird event of like two people and their dog. That's just bizarre. Foul play was ruled out early, uh, is my understanding. And so that led to uh, environmental causes. And my understanding is that the neurotoxin, a neurotoxic bloom was ruled out in favor. The evidence was more supportive of hyperthermia. Yeah, heat, heat stroke, essentially. Whether there was uh, some sort of uh, interaction is, I guess, possible. Whether it's plausible is another question. I think I could imagine a neurotoxin interacting perhaps with other neurological damages that could, could sort of compound each other and lead to uh, maybe a synergistic event that could lead to mortality. But as far as I know, there aren't mechanisms that are understood where uh, a neurotoxin could e increase your susceptibility to, to a, a change in your thermal environment. But that's a hypothesis. Very interesting. Thank you for asking that question and answering that question. Um, yeah, thank you again, everyone, for coming on the show today. I will share Tony's poster on the herring and also, Dr. Whitehead, your lab's information as well. It's been a pleasure being on the show. Yeah, thank you for having us. Good. Awesome. Thank you, guys. Thank you, everyone, for joining us today. It was a wonderful conversation with Dr. Andrew Whitehead and his team at UC Davis. They are studying evolutionary genomics. And the reason why I reached out to them is because I was really interested in understanding ecotoxicology and stress biology and what that means to fish and animals and the environment and how that can relate to humans. So we hope that you enjoyed this today. Please like, share, comment on our content. Also subscribe to our channel. We're on all podcasting platforms. And please go ahead and contribute to our GoFundMe and Patreon pages to keep this podcast rolling. Thank you, everyone. And we'll see you next time.